0: So please turn with me, if you will, to Jonah chapter 1. Again, Jonah is in, uh, to- or towards the end of, of your Old Testament, it's in the prophetic section of the Old Testament. And this morning we'll be reading Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 17, to the rest of Jonah chapter 1. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 17. We also, after reading Jonah chapter 1, we'll be reading together from Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 17. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy an inspired word given to us this morning. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At this point, I also will be reading from Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. So if you wish to turn there, you can. Otherwise, you can can listen along to Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Hear now the word of our God. And Jesus said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we considered last week, this story of Jonah is much more than a a quaint children's story about a man being swallowed by a great fish or a great whale. There's much more to this story than what may appear to be there on the surface. Now, the way in which we can read this narrative as God intends us to read this narrative is by seeing the person of Jonah as both a mirror and a window. We're to see the person of Jonah as both a mirror and a window. Now the way in which Jonah functions as a mirror is that we begin to see our own reflection in Jonah's rebellion and sin. Now the way in which Jonah functions as a window is that Jonah is a type of Christ. Sometimes we can see through the window of Jonah and see a glimpse of Christ. In these instances, Jonah is sort of functioning like a block mirror. We can't really see uh, specific uh, objects on the other side. We just see a general light. Other times, Jonah functions as a blacked out window that is merely just a dark backdrop for the shining purity of our Lord. Now in this scene before us, as Jonah is on a ship heading to Tarshish uh, in the midst of a great storm, uh, we see hear many things going on. Now, if we broaden our understanding of of this storm to really any difficult providence of life, tribulation, trials, natural disasters, death, disease, this scene immediately draws us in. As we see a reflection of ourselves as we travail this, this veil of tears. However, In this scene, we also get a glimpse of the greater prophet, our Lord Jesus Christ, who actually has authority over the wind and the waves, the great storm. And so this morning, I'd like us to to consider together three points. We'll first consider Jonah's sin, then we'll consider Jonah's storm, and then last of all, we'll consider the one who has authority over the storm. So Jonah's sin, Jonah's storm, and then the one who has authority over the storm. As we consider these three points, Lord willing, we will be able to see Jonah as both a window and a mirror. We will see both ourselves and we will see Christ, the greater prophet. Now, what is Jonah's main sin here in in chapter 1? What is Jonah's main sin, greatest sin, in chapter 1? Well, it's his flight from the presence of God. The author makes note of this sin twice in verse 3 and then again in verse 10. Jonah is fleeing from the presence of God. As we considered last week, this phrase refers to how Jonah is more particularly fleeing from the word of God. He's fleeing from the call of God. Throughout scripture, we see God's presence is defined by his word. Where is God present? Well, he's present in his word. He's present in his speech. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, prophets received revelation from Yahweh in Palestine, in the Promised Land, amongst the covenant community of God. And so Jonah, Jonah's not liking what he's receiving from, from Yahweh in the Promised Land. And, and he thinks, how do, I, how do I get away from God's word? Well, well I flee. I flee. To Tarshish, southwest part of Spain. Then God will stop speaking to me and my conscience will stop plaguing me. This is, this is Jonah's logic. So Jonah's fleeing. Fleeing from the presence of God by fleeing from the word of God. Now the way in which the author emphasizes this, this sin is through the theme of dissent. The way in which the author emphasizes this sin in chapter 1 is through the theme of So notice in verse 3, how we read that Jonah went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. And then in verse 5, we read, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And then verse 15, we read that the sailors picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And then verse 17, we read that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days. And so at the beginning of of chapter uh, 1, Jonah begins presumably in... The northern kingdom of Israel in Palestine. And where is Jonah at the end of chapter 1? He's in the middle of the Mediterranean in, in, in the belly of a great fish. And so the way in which the author emphasizes this sin, the sin of, of fleeing from the word of God is through the theme of descent. And this is a very apt way to think about sin in general. Generally speaking, our unrepentant sin tends to snowball. One sin begets another sin begets another sin. And when we flee from the word of God, which is what Jonah is doing here, when we flee from the word of God by fleeing from that word as it's proclaimed in a true church, and that really is how we flee from the word of God. Because we live in in the age of, of expressive individualism. And so it's very easy for us to give our basic assent to the Bible individually, but then we treat that Bible merely as a wax Mm. nose to justify whatever position and path we want to pursue. And so the way, the main way in which we flee from the word of God today is by fleeing from the word as it's proclaimed in the true church. Because in, in the church, you can't treat the Bible as a wax nose because there's accountability. And so when we flee the word of God by fleeing the proclamation of that word in the true church is very easy to continue to descend into more and more sin. Whether it be sin of doctrine or sin of life. Uh, sin in life. And so we, we are called here to heed, to heed Jonah's negative example. Uh, to be on guard from uh, descending, descending into the pit of unrepentant sin. Well, what is the effect of, or the consequence of Jonah's sin here in chapter 1? Well, Jonah's sin leads to Jonah's storm. The Lord hurls, hurls a storm upon Jonah because of this sin of his flight from the presence of God. And so in verse 4, we read that the Lord hurls, he sends upon the sea a great wind. And this great wind produces a great storm which threatens to break up the ship that's headed to Tarshish. Now, what is the sailors' response? Well, the sailors are, are afraid. They're, they're shaking their boots. Now, these sailors were experienced seamen, So the fact that they were terrified shows us that this, this would have been a, a pretty violent storm. And what do they do? Well, they, they call out to their gods. These are pagan Gentile sailors. And they call out to their gods. This shows us that all image bearers of God have a basic natural knowledge of God. Uh, John Calvin referred to this as the sensus divinitatis. There's a sense of divinity that we all have written upon our hearts. Paul speaks this way in Romans chapter 1, that through creation all people have a basic knowledge of God as creator. And so these sailors call out to uh, these these pagan gods for help. And then they proceed to, to throw off, to hurl into the sea the cargo upon their ship. At this point they don't really care about their wealth or other goods. They just care about saving their lives. Now, notice the contrast between their response and Jonah's response. We see that that Jonah descends into the bottom of the ship to take a nap. Now, our English translations render this verse in a way that, that seems to imply that Jonah went down to take a nap before the storm came, but The original Hebrew isn't that specific. And there are good reasons to think that Jonah actually went down to take a nap after the storm struck. So Jonah, we're not told that Jonah was terrified by the storm. Rather, he goes down to the bottom of the ship and takes a nap. He doesn't call out to his God, to Yahweh, uh, as the the sailors call out to, to their pagan gods. And so we see a pretty drastic contrast between the sailors' response and Jonah's response. And the captain then comes down to the bottom of the ship and wakes up Jonah and says, Arise, call out to your God. We're all calling out to our gods. Why don't you call upon your God? So just as this book began with Yahweh coming to Jonah and saying, Arise, arise Go and go to Nineveh. This pagan Gentile captain comes to Jonah at the bottom of the ship and says, Arise, <laughs> arise and and." And, and call out to your God. Make things right with your God. We then read or proceed in this narrative and see that the sailor, sailors cast lots to try to determine whose fault, whose fault it is that, that resulted in this storm. And the lots fall upon Jonah. And so they pepper Jonah with questions. Who are you? Where did you come from? What is your country? And Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. I serve Yahweh. I serve the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And, and he goes on to say that I'm actually fleeing from, from his presence. And so then towards the end of the narrative, it, it's, a basic, it's basic knowledge to everybody on board that this storm is a result of Jonah's sin. This is Jonah's storm because of Jonah's sin. Now, for the original audience, the fact that God is judging Jonah with a storm, this this would not have been a, a a surprising element of the narrative. Oftentimes, God used watery judgments to judge people in the Old Testament. And boys and girls, how did God judge the world in Noah's day? A flood, a watery judgment. How did God judge Pharaoh and the Egyptians? He judged them through the waters of the Red Sea, and so to here... God is is judging Jonah through another watery judgment, a storm on the Mediterranean. Furthermore, in, in verse 11 and 13, the author uses this phrase twice. He says that the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now, literally, in the original language here, the author is saying that the sea was walking and raging. That's the literal wooden translation. The sea was walking and raging. And so the ESV smooths that out by saying more and more tempestuous. This is vivid imagery. The sea was walking and raging while they were at sea. Now this should bring to mind God's first judgment upon the sin of our first parents. So this should bring to mind God's judgment upon the original sin of our parents. So in Genesis chapter three, when God comes to judge Adam and Eve for their original sin, we read in Genesis chapter three, verse eight, that God was walking in the garden in the cool, or you could even say the spirit of the day. God was walking in the garden in the spirit or the cool of the day. Now, the image that we should have in mind is is not God taking a stroll on a beautiful spring day in a wonderful garden. Rather, this is the day of judgment. God's coming to judge the sin of Adam and Eve. God is walking in the spirit of the day of judgment. Now, of course, God was not literally walking. This is anthropomorphic language in order to to communicate the seriousness, the seriousness of, of God's judgment. However, Based on the similarity in, in, in language between Jonah 1 and Genesis 3 8, uh, we can see that just as God was walking in the spirit of the day of judgment in Genesis 3, so too in Jonah chapter 1, the storm was walking in judgment against Jonah's sin. And thus there's a connection between the common curse in response to original sin and Jonah's storm in response to his sin. So there's a link there that we should, we should take note of. This is one of the reasons why we can interpret this storm in a broader sense. To difficult providences, tribulations, trials, natural disasters, disease, death, hardship. And thus, this teaches us that the storms of life are a result, not necessarily of particular sins that we commit, but rather original sin. The original sin of our first parents. This teaches us that the storms of life that we face are not necessarily a result of of particular sins that we commit, but the original sin of our first parents. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says that these present sufferings The storms of this life, they're not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. And then he goes on to say that God, in Genesis 3, God subjected creation itself to futility. Even creation is subjected to that original common curse. And creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. It's groaning, groaning for new creation. That day of redemption. And so as we walk in, uh, in this life, this is the veil of tears, we should lament, we should groan that things are not as they should be. Things are not as they should be. We, we oftentimes experience the natural consequences of our sin. This is kind of what Proverbs speaks about. If you habitually lie, people aren't going to trust you. Other times in life, we we experience those seasons in which it seems as if the righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering, and there there really is no apparent reason or cause behind the storms or sunny days of life. And This is what Ecclesiastes and Job reminds us of. Other times, we experience suffering because of the result of other people's sin, just as these sailors are in the predicament that they're in because of Jonah's sin. All of these things should make us long for the day in which the sea will be no more, as John reminds us in Revelation 21. Uh, When there will be no storms in this life, no pain, tribulation, hardship, or tears. The day in which the sun will be permanently shining and sin and its consequences will be eradicated. We should groan for that day and lament the current state of our world. A world that's been subjected to futility. Now, it's important to know, it's important to, to make this, this qualification that God, God, of course, is not the author of, of sin. He's not the author of evil. The reason why we are in the miserable state and condition which we're in is because of our fault, the original sin of our first parents. However, however, God is still sovereign over the storm, even though God is not the author of sin, the author of evil. God is still sovereign over the storm and that's a theme that the author here emphasizes for us. It's very difficult to read Jonah 1 and not come to the conclusion that God is sovereign. For instance, in verse 4 we read, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Who is the one who produced this storm? God is. In fact, this word hurl is the same word that the author uses to refer to how the sailors hurled their cargo and Jonah overboard. It's as if God just flung a great wind upon the sea which produced a storm which threatened to break up the ship. God was sovereign over the storm. In verse 15, we we see that God ultimately was the one who caused the storm to cease. Then in verse 17, who is the one who... Who uh, appointed this great fish to swallow Jonah? God is. The Lord appointed this fish to swallow Jonah. God is not a divine chess player merely reacting to the moves of his crea- uh, creatures. God knows the end from the beginning. In one simultaneous act. God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over economic upturns and downturns. God is sovereign over the sunny blue skies that we enjoy, but also the tornadoes and and hurricanes that we lament over. He is sovereign over disease and good health, famines and fruitful yields. He is sovereign over everything. And so we see that theme emphasized here in chapter 1, that God is sovereign over this entire scene that is taking place in Jonah chapter 1. Now, if you were to step back for a moment, and just reflect upon the scene of Jonah 1. Uh, reflect upon the scene which involves a prophet of God uh, taking a nap in a ship while there's a raging storm going on. Sailors who are terrified about what is going on, and yet God is sovereign over all of these things that are happening. What New Testament passage does this remind you of? Well, it should remind you of, of Luke chapter 8, which we recently read. And note the similarities between Jonah 1 and Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, we read that Jesus and his disciples get into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. And shortly after they set out, Jesus, this great prophet of the Lord, he falls asleep. And a storm hits the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples, many of whom were experienced fishermen, are terrified. Terrified at their current situation. And they they wake up Jesus just as the captain of the the boat woke up Jonah. But whereas Jonah was a mere creature, a mere human who had had no power over the wind and the waves, we see that Jesus, as the greater prophet of God, commands the wind and the waves. In fact, he even rebukes the wind and the waves and the storm abates. And this word that Luke uses for rebuke, the Lord rebuked, the wind and the waves, is the same word that is used in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 2 when God is said to have rebuked Satan. It's the same word that the psalmist uses in Psalm 105 when uh, the psalmist speaks about God rebuking the waters of the Red Sea. And thus, this narrative in Luke chapter 8 communicates to us that Jesus has all authority, authority over the spiritual realm, and authority over all creation through the means of his powerful word. Jonah, Jonah was a mere creature. Jesus is God incarnate. Now the story about Jesus' power as the greater prophet of God doesn't necessarily comfort us. It communicates to us that that Jesus is all powerful, but, but that doesn't necessarily comfort us. It actually could could terrify us. In fact, that's the effect that it had on the disciples. We read that after Jesus performed this, this miracle, they marveled to one another and were afraid, saying, Who is this among us who has power over the wind and the waves? And the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this? They were in the presence of the holiness of God and they were terrified. One wonders, will this power be wielded for me or against me? For us or against us? And so the question that comes to mind at this point is, how can we know that Jesus' authority as this great prophet of God over all things will be wielded for our good and not our destruction? How do we know that Jesus' authority as the prophet of God will be wielded for our good and not for our destruction? That's a very important question. Well, as we, if you were to fast forward in the ministry of our Lord uh, to Jesus's death, that climax of his earthly ministry, what was the point of Jesus's death? First and foremost, the point of Jesus's death was not to give us um, um, an example of, of self-sacrificial love. I mean, that's true, but that's not that's not the most important part of the cross. No, the most important point of Jesus's death on the cross is him subjecting himself to the greatest storm of all, namely the wrath of God. Jesus subjected himself to the greatest storm of all that was brought about because of our sin. Jesus subjected himself to the greatest storm of all. Jesus' death on the cross was the fulfillment of all of those watery judgments of the Old Testament. The flood in Noah's day, the destruction of Pharaoh, and the Egyptians in the waters of the Red Sea. Even Jonah's storm. All of those watery judgments find their fulfillment in Jesus' death on the cross as he drank the cup of his father's wrath for the sins of his people. This is precisely why Jesus refers to his death on the cross as a baptism. He says to his disciples, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And thus, when we receive baptism... Our baptisms are not first and foremost about us. They're about God and his gospel. Baptism is all about Jesus drinking the cup of his father's wrath for the sins of his people. And thus Jesus, Jesus subjected himself to the greatest storm of all. Jesus, who is authority over all things, subjected himself to the greatest storm of all so that we might have the assurance of a secure salvation. And and note that this this theme is foreshadowed in Jonah chapter 1. Because how does Jonah cause the storm uh, to abate? He can't rebuke the storm. He doesn't have power to do that. He's a mere human. Rather, he offers himself as a substitutionary sacrifice. He tells the sailors to throw him overboard so that they might be saved. And this is exactly what Jesus does as he takes the plunge into the waters of God's wrath for us so that we might experience the calm, the calm sea, and and the brightness of the sun. And so Jesus subjected himself to the greatest storm of all so that we might have the assurance of a secure salvation, so that we might have the assurance of never having to taste that greatest storm of all, namely the wrath of God. The tribulations that you face in this life are as worse are as bad as they get you will never have to face what Jesus endured on that cross. Jesus endured the greatest star of all so that you might have a sure and certain hope, a hope of one day fully belonging to the new creation, a new creation in which the sea will be no more, a new creation in which there will be no pain, tribulation, trials or hardening. Jesus subjected himself to the greatest storm of all, so that we might have confidence. Confidence that everything that befalls us in this life will be worked for good, will be used to further strengthen our bond with our head, husband, and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we endure the storms of this life, the trials, the tribulation in which the Lord permits to to enter, Our lives, we can either respond like Jonah and escape, go to the bottom of the boat and take a nap, or we can come to embrace God's goal for our lives. And what's God's goal for our lives? God's goal for our lives is, is not mere happiness, it's holiness. God's goal for our lives is not mere earthly prosperity, but conformity, conformity to the image of Christ. And thus, as we come to recognize God's goal for our existence and for our lives, we also come to to view these storms not as obstacles to our prosperity and happiness, but opportunities that God makes good on to make us holy and further conform us to the image of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for your holy and inspired word. We thank you that your word communicates truth to us. And uh, we thank you that we can learn, even from the short narrative of the book of Jonah, we can learn not only of, of our own sin and rebellion, the ways in which we, we near uh, Jonah's rebellion, seeking to flee, to flee from your word and your call and for your will for our lives, which is summarized in your Ten Commandments. But we most of all thank you for how, how Jonah points us forward to the greater prophet, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for how he has the power over all things. He has the power to rebuke the wind and the waves. He has the power uh, to rebuke the evil one, O oh Lord. He has, re- he has the power uh, to put asunder our own sins that constantly plague us. We pray that you would continue to grow our faith and confidence in this gospel message. And we pray, O oh Lord,